Good evening and welcome. What better way to celebrate an evening than to come together this evening as church? I wanted to let you know a little bit before we begin, we might have some newcomers here, a little bit about Future Church. Since its founding in 1990 in Cleveland, Ohio, Future Church has become a respected national voice advocating open discussion about ending mandatory celibacy as a requirement for diocesan priesthood, advancing women in church leadership, promoting lay participation in all levels of church decision making, and maintaining the spirit of Vatican II in the life of the church. Future Church is committed to working for renewal within the organization and structures of the Roman Catholic Church. Your membership and donations support our mission, allowing us to work for changes in our church. If you are already a member, we thank you for your generous support. If you are not a member, please consider becoming one tonight. Membership forms are available at the Future Church table, which is in the gathering area. Before I go any further, can we take like a minute to either silence your phone or put them on vibrate? Just to give you an idea of, of what we'll be doing tonight, after our opening prayer, Father Clark will, will speak, and then we'll have a free will offering. All those offerings are directed towards the enhancement to support future church programs. We'll then have time for questions and answers. And in your um, program, you should have had a white card. So during the collection, we'll give you time to write out your questions and prepare them to give to Father Clark. After our brief closing prayer, we'll have refreshments. If you'd like, Father Clark's presentation is going to be recorded, and if you want to order a copy of that, that also will be available to you to, at the uh, table in the gathering area. While it wasn't planned this way, I think, think that our topic, Voice of Their Own, the authority of the local parish is very timely for us. And so it's my honor to introduce Father Clark to you. Father Clark is Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at Holy Cross College in Worcester, Massachusetts, where he teaches courses in Catholicism, Christian prayer, and the church. I think one of my questions will be, would you help me write my paper for spirituality this semester? In addition to his academic work on the role of local church com communities, Father Bill has extensive experience in parish pastoral work, retreat direction, and music ministry. So please help me welcome Father Bill. Catholic, we have to pray first. Huh? The prayer is in the inside of your purple booklet. Let's take a moment of silence here in the midst of our busy lives in order to collect the events of today and bring ourselves body and soul into this gathering.
We gather here as God's family, the people chosen to live in this world, in this day and age, with current situations of politics, economics, and life. May we enter into this time now, conscious of our high calling, and open to God's voice within and among us. Together, we now ask you, Jesus, our brother, to open our eyes, teach us to see your face in everyone, open our ears to hear your voice, open our hearts, teach us to love as you love, let us be with the Spirit. Amen. Good evening. It's my pleasure to be with you uh, this evening, the first time that I've ever actually uh, alighted in Cleveland. I've uh, driven through on a couple of occasions, but uh, uh, this is a new uh, a new place on the map for me uh, to be present, so I'm, I'm happy to be here. I'm going to speak tonight on the, the major themes that are in uh, the, the book that I published about a year and a half ago, uh, which was entitled by the publisher, A Voice of Their Own, The Authority of the Local Parish. Um, my original suggested title, but being a, a new author, they didn't take me up on that, um, was uh, closer to what you see here as a subtitle, and it contains the themes that I'm going to speak about this evening. Uh, authority, intimacy, and local church communities. And so I will hopefully uh, be able to explain what I'm thinking about with regard to each one of those terms, and uh, uh, I hope that you will find it useful for the situation of parishes uh, and all sorts of local church communities. I understand that you're in the midst of uh, a process in uh, Cleveland that is similar and hopefully not similar uh, to, the, uh, to the process that um, has been um, undertaken in many other places uh, in uh, in the U.S., and I'm hoping that my uh, next book will actually be about parish reorganization plans and their uh, ecclesiological impact, what they say to us about what we understand by the word church, uh, and whether or not those visions of church can uh, get along with each other and uh, complement one another. So let me begin by talking a little bit about the the motivation for this whole project um, that uh, resulted in the book uh, A Voice of Their Own. <clears throat> there it is. Theological and pastoral. Can we talk? Uh, not always, unfortunately, is the answer to that. Pastoral work was something that I was engaged in myself um, early on in my uh, career as a Jesuit. Um, from the time that I was uh, in the novitiate, starting in 1982, I worked in a number of different parishes and found that in the midst of that practical work with communities in the church, I was uh, 
constantly coming up with new questions about what it was exactly that we were trying to do and how we could do it better. Um, I remember at one point when I was working at a parish in Kingston, Jamaica, which is one of the ones that I, uh, eventually I was the pastor of this parish, and it's one of the ones that I wrote about in the book. There are three parishes that are highlighted in the book. Um, that we would get people coming to the door frequently uh, for assistance. And I can remember having to wrestle with that. We didn't have a lot of money, and there were clearly a lot of scams going on. And there was also, just as clearly, perhaps even more clearly, uh, enormous need. And even just that one question, what do I do when I answer the door, and why? Uh, brought about so many uh, theological um, uh, ruminations in the midst of the pastoral work that I began to see very early on that, for me anyway, these two areas had to go together. Um, pastoral work was always raising questions, but in theology, when I uh, eventually got into theology studies quite a number of years after I began as a Jesuit, uh, that was always pointing me back towards pastoral work. Because it's possible, and you may have noticed this if you've ever tried to read any theology, it's possible to uh, jet off into the stratosphere pretty, uh, pretty easily, pretty quickly. And I knew that, that for the people that I was more and more concerned about in the parishes that I'd served in, that was not going to be helpful uh, or useful, and it wasn't what I was interested in. So how to bring the, the pastoral situations and the theological depth of the Catholic tradition together uh, in such a way that they could feed each other? That was really the question that was ultimately behind um, the work that uh, uh, eventually uh, uh, came out in this book. The parishes that I wrote about have all had a personal impact on me. They have, in fact, shaped me in ways that I will call authoritative. And I'm going to explain later on what I really mean by that. But it's because of my personal experience in these parishes that I come to the conclusion that it is in these local communities that we encounter a very important kind of church authority. Not the only kind but uh, an essential kind. Next slide. The parishes that I wrote about included my home parish in Fairfield, Maine, the Immaculate Heart of Mary. I learned as I grew up in this parish that the church is the family of God, the house of God. It's where I learned to identify myself as Catholic. And it's where my eventual decision to become a priest first took root and was hinted at. And it's a place that, to this day, still feels like home to me. Uh, it is where my sort of center of gravity is located. Now I'm about to be faced with a serious challenge, personally, because, uh, like some of your parishes, uh, my parish is being merged. 
and we're not quite sure what's going to happen to the buildings and so forth, but uh, the name um, may or may not remain. Um, this one parish will become part of a cluster of seven parishes that will become one parish with one pastor. Um, that is part of the reality in the Diocese of Portland, Maine. Uh, 135 parishes being uh, brought down to 27. Um, um, we'll say more about that. Uh, it, clearly you find it as, uh, as distressing as I do, um, but we'll, we'll talk about some details there. Um, the next slide, please. Out of at least 11 other parishes that I've been associated with, uh, that I would at one point or another have considered myself to be a member of, uh, there were uh, three others that I highlighted in the book. Uh, the first of these is St. Thomas Aquinas in Kingston, Jamaica. It's the parish I was speaking of a moment ago. Uh, the thing that stands out for me there, and when I speak about these places shaping me authoritatively, these are the places where I learned in my gut these important ideas about church. Of course I knew that church is a communion uh, before I went to Aquinas, but what that really meant and what it entails... Uh, was something that I learned only really as pastor at, uh, at St. Thomas. Uh, and I was there as an assistant um, before I was ordained as well. St. Thomas Aquinas is a church that is built on the edge of the university campus in Kingston, Jamaica. And so it has a fair number of well-educated and wealthy um, parishioners. But unlike most of the other Catholic parishes in the city of Kingston... Uh, it also has uh, the opposite uh, demographic. There are very poor Catholic parishes in Kingston. There are very wealthy ones. There aren't too many that are at the crossroads, and St. Thomas is one of those. Uh, I would have, at a typical weekend mass, on the left side, and notice the geography, um, the... Uh, members of a squatter settlement next door to the church who didn't own anything, uh, including the land that they were illegally perched on. Uh, and on the other side of a very small church room uh, was the president of Super Clubs, um, the uh, co-founder of Hedonism 2, if you've ever heard of that, was one of my parishioners. Um, so uh, that brings up other questions that we don't need to get into tonight. But uh, <clears throat> Aquinas taught me the struggle and yet the promise at the same time, promise and frustration of the church as a community, the power of that, to be able to have an institution that would bring those two groups of people together every week in a way that they could almost not avoid dealing with each other in one way or another. And yet at the same time, the enormous frustration of that. I remember uh, dealing with a group of teenagers from uh, Mona Common, the, um, the squatter settlement, uh, who were wanting to be baptized. And so we devised a special RCIA program for them. At the same time, there were a group of the uh, wealthier uh, families' children who were preparing for confirmation. And 
it was worth my life and actually more expensive than my life as it turned out um, to get those two groups to do anything together. One uh, afternoon when the confirmation group was going out uh, for uh, a fried chicken meal, um, the RCIA kids from the ghetto were left uh, literally standing at the door of the church watching them drive away. Uh, the promise and the frustration. Uh, that experience drilled into me the struggle that it is to be church. In the next slide, we see um, St. Matthew's Parish in Boston, the Dorchester section of Boston, the church as the people of God. Here I encountered a very determined immigrant community, again Caribbean people, mostly Haitian this time, uh, who were so connected as a people that it didn't seem to matter what kind of earthquake went off underneath. Uh, they held together as the people of God, as a Christian community. It was so much a part of their identity that there was no shaking it. And this uh, came through all of the different ways in which they arrived in Boston, many of them refugees, uh, in two different uh, eras of serious trouble in Haiti. Some speaking French, some speaking Creole, and having all kinds of battles over that within the, within the uh, parish, and yet never letting go of who they were. Having multiple pastors passed through, some of whom paid uh, more attention to them than others, uh, and still holding together to this day, even in the midst of one more very precarious uh, situation of shared pastors and so forth. At St. Joseph's Church in Biddeford, Maine, the church is a sacrament. The church is a sign for the world at large. These people are French Canadians. They have been, uh, their families have been in Biddeford for about 150 years now. When they came, they too were a, a body that was so convinced of the fact that their Catholicism was essential to their identity that they too were not going to be deterred by anything. They had to worship with Irish people of all things, when they first arrived. And they endured that. And, uh, and then uh, built their own church, which became uh, kind of the symbol of the city of Biddeford. And the whole city began to revolve around this French-Canadian community. They've been through all sorts of ups and downs, and they're very much assimilated now, in a way that they weren't for the first century or so. But they continue to hold on with that old ethnic pride and a kind of a quiet but active contentment with their Catholicism, even in the midst of all of the upheavals that the church in general is going through. It remains to be seen what will happen with this community because they're part of the, the whole um, situation in Maine. Uh, so there were three parishes in the city of Biddeford. Right now they're sharing one pastor and that's an interim step to adding four more churches which will have one pastor in four different towns in that area. The church is the church in these four different places. Parishes, I think, are microcosms of the churches struggling and learning and growing. 
everywhere. If we want to see what the church is going through, we look at the face of the church in local church communities like parishes. These communities have been the place where tangible signs of the presence of God, tangible signs of salvation in our world, have been seen for 2,000 years. You don't look to uh, an institution. Uh, You don't look to an idea. You don't look to uh, a leader who is many, many miles away. To get a tangible sign of how God is working, you look to the people around you. And this has been happening since the beginning of the existence of the church. So what we see in these parishes, and any one of you could give a list uh, of communities just as interesting as the communities that I have connected with, what we see in these places is the face of the church. Next one. But of course, the local communities are not always appreciated as such. They've encountered a great deal of abuse. Uh, And there are many ways of kind of cataloging that. I will give you some examples from what I experienced in the parishes that I write about in the book. At Aquinas, there were annual diocesan synods in the Archdiocese of Kingston. And uh, Originally, I thought this was a really wonderful idea. And in many ways, uh, I still think that uh, at bottom, the, uh, the idea was, uh, was uh, quite an inspiration, quite a good idea. They were representatives from uh, every parish. Uh, and we talked about issues that were facing the church in Kingston. What was unfortunate was that the structure kind of overwhelmed the reality. And there were lots of things talked about that never again saw the light of day. But when I was the pastor at Aquinas, I got a different view of what goes on with the diocesan synod. And it brought up for me this whole notion of how the parish gets treated uh, by the diocese. Uh, When I was preparing for the first of these synods when I was pastor, Aquinas was the location that was usually used for these meetings. And so I was getting ready to be the host pastor. But what happened instead was that the diocesan staff arrived. Uh, And that was pretty much the last I had to say about anything in my church until uh, the synod was over. Um, The structure of the synod was imposed on the people who represented the parishes. They were told what they were going to talk about, when and where, and once they were finished putting, giving their input, everything disappeared back to the chancery, and sometimes it was heard of again, um, but most often not. The prioritization and the implementation was uh, left in the hands of what I can only call insiders. And the people who were often very simple believers... Um, from places all over the eastern end of the island, not just uh, city people, but um, uh, people who only came into Kingston to attend meetings like this one. Uh, But they were not necessarily taken seriously. And that was a serious problem, I thought, with regard to implementing what 
would otherwise have been a very good idea. At St. Matthew's, a very unfortunate incident was my introduction to the whole question of sexual abuse in the church. It happened uh, nearly ten years before the lid blew off uh, in that same archdiocese of Boston. The pastor was called into the chancery on a Sunday afternoon and told to be out of the rectory by Thursday. The parish was given no information about where he had gone. There was no other priest assigned to that parish. Um, There was a priest in residence who was waiting for an assignment, and I showed up about a week after this all began to be a priest in residence. It was my first year of priesthood, actually. It was right after my ordination. Uh, To be a priest in residence while I was finishing one of my degrees in in theology at the Western uh, School of Theology in Cambridge. And I was told for the first week that I was there that the pastor was uh, away at alcohol rehab. They could manage that much. Um, but that's uh, all I was told until finally the, uh, the priest in residence who had become de facto the pastor uh, broke down and told me uh, the whole story, which was that an accusation of abuse had been uh, leveled against the pastor. The parish was never told. Uh, the diocese, the archdiocese eventually called about two weeks after the pastor was told to leave to find out if mass was being said at this parish. Um, eventually we did have a series of meetings with the regional bishop, but the priorities were unbelievable. No information was given for about a year Uh, we were forbidden to tell anyone what was really going on. It all had to get out by uh, word of mouth and underground. Uh, At the end of this whole process, there was a large show of community input for choosing a new pastor, without the people ever being officially told why their old pastor was gone. There was a a, a parish meeting, there were talks of, uh, of various sorts, And then uh, they sent the pastor who they had decided they were going to send before they ever did any of those meetings. Turned out he was uh, was pretty good, actually. But he was there for about two years and off again. And ever since that time, there's been an an unending series of short-term pastors at this parish. Um, This is local church community uh, being abused, I think. At uh, St. Joseph's Church in Biddeford, the clustering there and at Immaculate Heart of Mary um, is like much of what's taking place with regard to parish reorganizations. Something that is falling short largely, I think, because of structural problems, not because of any one particular person's fault. Uh, I'm sympathetic both to the confused communities in these places and to the overburdened priests who are being given the job of implementing these plans. When I go to either of these places right now, it's very hard for me to to know exactly what to say because everybody's making sense, but they're all saying something different. So I don't envy 
the bishops or anyone else who has to uh, implement these programs. However, I do think that by and large they're being driven by a clergy shortage or by attention to uh, what's perceived as a clergy shortage without enough assured structural input from lay people. Um, good talk, but not a lot of actual um, input and listened to input uh, on the part of laity. And so the question remains for me, will the new communities that result from this make sense to the communities themselves or only to the priests who are the ones who have to uh, implement the plans? That remains to be seen. By the way, I have looked at some of the information on um, vibrant parish life here in Cleveland, and uh, of all of the plans that I've seen so far, uh, at least uh, as it's put forward, uh, this one is the most impressive in terms of um, having more than one reason for doing what they're, what they're doing and allowing for uh, the input of communities. Uh, of course, uh, the proof is in the pudding, and uh, the pudding isn't out of the oven yet. So uh, we have to continue to see where these, uh, not just here in Cleveland, but everywhere, where they go. With regard to these problems of the local community, I've heard lots of different theories, theological reactions, I should say, to what's happening to local communities. And many of them, I think, are problematic. Um, I want to talk a little bit about those for a moment. <clears throat> the church needs to become a democracy. Democracy, in its original uh, translation, means rule by the mob. Um, <laughs> which is why, because it was understood that way, it had such a low reputation in places that we think of as being um, cradles of democracy, like, like Greece. Um, among the Greek philosophers, democracy was not usually thought of very highly. Uh, it might also be thought of, though, as rule by the elite um, in certain situations. What I have in mind uh, with regard to the church on this was a, a, an offhand comment that I heard very early on in the development of Voice of the Faithful in Boston. I had a front row seat for that as well. And members of uh, an African-American parish in Boston uh, that was being pastored by a Jesuit friend of mine at the time uh, said about Voice of the Faithful and they were asked if they were going to the convention in July of 2002 uh, they're just the new bishops as far as we're concerned which was a really uh, that was a splash of cold water um, a wake up call in a lot of ways when we ask for democracy in the church we need to make sure that we're not just asking for our own way um, and that sometimes is the translation the big question with regard to this approach, from my point of view, is, is there room for prophecy? Uh, are we looking for forward vision, or are we looking to get along and uh, to, to find a consensus, or to find the balance of those who want to lead and those uh, who will remain apathetic? There are 
places that have experienced or experimented with independence or congregationalism, uh, you can think of a number of different parishes that through various circumstances have found themselves uh, uh, doing their own thing, even considering themselves still within the Catholic tradition. The question here is, can the church continue to be the sacrament of the whole body of Christ? Or will it become only a gathering of the like-minded, a club? That's what we have to uh, beware of uh, if we move more and more towards a congregational model to satisfy problems that we have with the larger institution. And in the third of these scenarios, traditionalism, there's a retreat back to the old clerical deference, back to the old devotionalism and uh, other older liturgical uh, expressions and so forth in a way that uh, is being presented sometimes lately as if uh, the changes backwards uh, are essential to Eucharist, for example. I don't think that that's the case. I think that we, that we may be looking for comfort and certainty in a world that is short on those commodities. Rather than facing the new situations that we find ourselves in. Traditionalism has been called the dead faith of the living versus the living faith of the dead, uh, which is uh, tradition without the ism on the end of it. Um, the ability to take what we receive from previous generations and live it. Um, let it be organic. Let it stimulate who we are and what we do uh, without being something that uh, kills our faith uh, with a straitjacket. Can we ever really go back? Uh, I think probably not. But even if we could, we might want to ask ourselves, isn't there a reason why we left there in the first place? So what I'm interested instead in trying to understand the role of these parishes is a living tradition. <clears throat> the deposit of faith that we hear spoken of so often cannot be just a static thing. Sometimes this image is used as if it were a package or a lockbox, uh, to quote Al Gore of Happy Memory, um, that could be passed on to the next generation and given to the one after that in exactly the same form forever. Amen. Jesus gave us a parable about that, um, passing on what we receive uh, unchanged. And you'll remember that the fellow who did that was the one that was thrown out into the darkness to wail and gnash his teeth. What we receive as talents are supposed to be returned with interest. And so our use of the tradition, our use of the deposit of faith, changes it. It grows it, hopefully. To live Christian love is a different proposition in different times and different places. And if we look at all the different kinds of communities in which people have tried to live Christian love, 
for 2,000 years, we see an enormous variety. We see prosperous Roman towns after the persecutions of the Christians were over. We see monasteries uh, waiting for the next Viking attack in the 8th century. Uh, We see Asian converts surrounded by suspicious non-believers in the 17th century and in the 21st century. Uh, We see European Catholics during the Holocaust, after the Holocaust, different proposition. We see American Catholics both before and after this terrible scandal of sexual abuse. After each one of these experiences or ways of being church community, it's impossible for the church, if it's exercising charity towards its own members, to even think of going back to what it was before or in a different time, a different place, to ignore the contributions that those experiences give to us as church together. Those contributions become a part of the church's authority. The church could not speak about the Holocaust in the 17th century, but we know about it now, and we can't not talk about the difference that that has made to our perceptions. The same way uh, as in the future we will not be able to think of the church the same way that we did before the scandal of sexual abuse. Those contributions, as I say, are part of the church's authority, especially on the local level, certainly. Uh, They are... I think I might have another slide here. Put the next one on. Yeah, okay, thanks. On the local level, this authority works this way. You cannot have leaders without followers. If nobody comes to church on a Sunday morning, it's a little silly for the priest to go there himself. Uh, If it's not going to change, that's when you shut down that parish and uh, move on. If nobody uh, is following, there can be no leaders. So the community itself has at least that much authority to say, we will go with you or we will not. But more deeply... uh, The fruits of charity, the fruits of our attempt to live Christian love together, day after day, those things become part of the community's being. Where the community is more personal than an institution. Where the church has a face, in other words. Think about your own experiences early on, the influences in your faith. And think about what's influencing it right now. And every one of us, I think, puts faces on that. It's not ideas by themselves. Even if we learned a lot of our faith by reading a book, as some people did. Uh, Thomas Merton comes to mind as someone who got going by reading a book. But if you've read The Seven Story Mountain, there are a lot of faces attached to the books that he read. He remembers who gave the books to him and why they cared. Every growth in our own faith is attached to a concrete situation. 
And that personal interaction, the next slide please, <clears throat> that personal interaction uh, is, the, is, is basic for local church community. The authority of the community is exercised through that personal interaction. A couple of examples there. Uh, no, I think we've gone ahead. I'm sorry. Can you uh, back up? Yeah, okay. All right. I'm sorry. I, uh, I skipped ahead there. Uh, thinking about how the, the, the local communities exercise this authority, you can think about Jesus with his disciples. The personal bond that allowed the disciples to recognize Jesus' own authenticity. Or the personal relationships that help us to learn and to demonstrate Christian love in our own uh, times and places. But authority is a complex idea. Now we can go back to that other slide. We're talking about these local communities expressing their authority in these very concrete ways. But what is authority? Here I'm following some ideas borrowed from a fellow Jesuit, David Stagman, at uh, Loyola University of Chicago in a book called Authority in the Church. There are three factors that I want to zero in on here. The authoritative the collection of values and beliefs, foundational values and beliefs, that the community recognizes. Things that will move us. Things that touch deep when we hear about them. And that we're not going to let go of. Things like the connection between the Catholicism and the Haitian ethnicity of the people at St. Matthew's. Or the French-Canadian identity of the people at St. Joseph's. And so forth. What is real for the people of this community? That's the authoritative. But that doesn't just sit there. It gets used. It gets uh, drawn out with interest, to continue the example that I was using before from the parables of Jesus. So the creative and responsible way in which the community uses that authoritative foundation that they're resting on and incorporates those values into their daily lives. That's what we call authenticity. If they really are uh, connecting to the values that are authoritative for them. The reason that Jesus was listened to was that he spoke with authority, they said. When he opened his mouth, they knew what he was talking about right away, even though it was new. They recognized it as new, but it connected it told them something about values that they already held deeply. They learned about their God by listening to Jesus. That's authenticity. And when that authenticity binds the community together, then we have authority. Authority is that bond that uses authoritative values and the authentic actions of the people of the community to create and maintain relationships within the community. The next one. (coughs) 
Now where does that authority take us? It's seen in the face-to-face intimacy of a local community. When there's a serious break between that intimacy, face-to-face relationships that we have with fellow Christians, and the exercise of authority, then authority is lost. If you cannot look the person who's exercising power in the eye, then authority is lost. That's where the feelings of betrayal came from during the sexual abuse crisis. Uh, that the ones, the ones who had seemed to be a part of the community, the ones who had seemed to connect to what was authoritative in that community, had in fact betrayed that intimacy and used it for entirely inauthentic action, on the one hand, uh, or uh, had not, uh, in the case of some bishops, uh, didn't use their power and authority in a a way that connected intimately at all with people, um, off in a direction of their own. Less noticeably, parish authority is effective universally as well, not only in that face-to-face way, which demands that intimacy and authority be combined, otherwise authority just becomes power, naked power, Uh, but also on a more universal, large scale. The influences in that intimate setting build up over time. People's ideas clash, or they're resisted, or they connect, they merge. And as those different experiences that we have with one another as believers become the experience of faith over time, then uh, emerging leaders bring those experiences into office with them. And then the followers will reference those same experiences as they try to understand these leaders. What I mean by that in the concrete is that bishops come from parishes. They all began in an intimate local community setting. We create our own leadership. It takes time, but that's what we do. And so those local parish communities are constantly setting the stage for what the church is going to be like in the future. And for that reason, they are incredibly important, uh, even on the very large scale. And so the, the thesis simply stated is this, what the book is trying to demonstrate. Local church communities possess a proper type of authority that belongs exclusively to this local level, that makes an essential contribution, a contribution that's constitutive of the church, to the life of the universal church, the whole church, viewed from the local perspective. The next slide. I speak in the book about a couple of different theories of church. In particular, I I look at the theology of Karl Rahner with regard to the local church. Rahner begins by speaking of the church as sacrament. And 
one of the things about sacrament is that it requires both an idea and a concrete expression of the idea, an embodiment. So Rahner says that the church is, the local church is the event of the church as a whole. It's where church happens. It's not a branch office. It is the place where church comes down to brass tacks. And he speaks about the church gathered around the altar. An altar community is his expression for that. We see the church become tangible and sensible and real in Rahner's idea We see that best around the Eucharistic table. Now the interesting thing is that the documents of Vatican II use ancient sources to talk about, to give the same description with the bishop as the presider. That that is the ancient vision of church. The bishop with his elders and the people gathered around a single altar. Which leads me to believe that perhaps the... uh, ancient church understood what we now call dioceses uh, to be something much more like parishes as we have them today. Catholic doctrine is absolutely adamant that the presence of Christ in the Eucharist is the thing that keeps the church in living contact with the Lord. It's about the Eucharist. But that Eucharist has to take place in a locality. You know you can't receive absolution over the telephone, and you can't receive the host in the mail after you've watched uh, EWTN or whatever it might be. Uh, We insist that for sacraments to be complete, they have to be done face-to-face, in a place. And if the Eucharist is that important to us, then the place where it's celebrated is also. It's essential. All of the symbolism of the Eucharist speaks about the bond that it creates on that local level. Christ becoming present to each one of us so that all of us are bound together by Christ. So that this community is in communion with all the other communities and a universal church can continue to offer that sacrifice of Christ but only because it's being done on the local level. And out of this comes the universality of the church. This is what the ancient church referred to as koinonia. It's not just local, it's not just universal. It's the two in complete dependence on one another. So, they're not at odds with each other, the local and the universal. We're not just a collection of local churches. They are completely in reciprocity with each other. And John Paul II used a phrase from Vatican II and then added another one of his own to put it this way. The church exists in and from the churches. And the churches exist in and from the church. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, in John Paul's answer, we will never know. Uh, Benedict has a little different take on that. And that's also in the book, if you want to uh, read a little more about that. So the church is sacrament. The local church is the event of that sacrament, the material part of the sacrament. The parts of the church contain the whole. Within each of these local communities is the purpose and the being of the whole church through the Eucharist. 
They are many, and yet they are one for that reason. And perhaps most importantly, we're on the way somewhere. Uh, None of this is static. So I conclude with the church as local community exercising its authority. How does it go about doing that? There are many challenges to that exercise. The first of those is the assumptions about the church that put all the emphasis on central structures over against local ones. Uh, to make it seem as though the authority always moves from the top down, rather than emphasizing the interdependence and the interaction that I've been speaking about. Another of the challenges is the difficulty uh, of community and intimacy just in general in our modern situation, whether we're talking about church or not. We have such an emphasis in our culture on personal choice as a defense, I think, against uncaring social structures. The structures are huge now. And we think they're going to crush us, and we might be right. And so we're very interested in talking about our personal freedom and our personal choice. Many of my students find it very difficult to think any other way. And I try to point out to them that uh, the things that that influence their lives and continually talk to them about their personal choice are things that they have no control over, uh, like popular culture and uh, what they find on the internet. Um, So, although our culture focuses so much on personal choice, uh, there is a huge overarching superstructure that we're trying to wrestle with in doing that. So when we attempt to build community, or what we call community... We often do so based on superficial interests, the community of Ford owners, for example, something like that. Uh, There seems to be a smaller and smaller community as time goes by. Um, And we do it for the sake of personal spiritual enrichment, rather than thinking about the community itself. We tend to avoid genuine intimacy, shared authoritative foundations, shared history, Uh, And we don't want to talk about the things that we fear or that confuse us or that make us hesitate. So there's a real crisis of authority in our current situation. All right. Um, Okay, I think we've jumped ahead again for just a moment. I'll, uh, I'll get to this. Yeah, okay, yeah, I'm just making the third point here. We need the strength of universal structures that are able to maintain globally relevant faith. We need that. Otherwise, um, we can't do trade, we can't do justice, we can't do peace on a global basis as we need to do if we don't have those structures. But on the other hand, local communities have always been the authorizers for ordinary Christians. We go out from the Christians that we know, from the parish that we know, you know, the place where what was too large to grasp somehow becomes comfortable daily reality for us. That's what the local church is. Christian identity has to flow from our real lives, not from inauthentic stereotypes. So, 
without strong support for the local, all those universal structures that we also have to have become a threat to us. And we recognize that. That's what we're running away from when we don't want intimacy or authority in our lives. When we're looking for just that personal choice aspect. So there's a real clash here. A real crisis. We need authoritative structures. We don't want to be trampled in our identities. So, the truly authentic local community is in creative dialogue with its own authoritative foundations. Uh, Those foundations include the roots of Christianity itself, the church, the doctrine of the church, the ethnic histories of the people that make up that community, the community history uh, of the area around this particular local church community, and the contemporary cultural context, all of that tells us something about what's authoritative, what's real, what's valuable, and we need to be in dialogue with that, or we won't be an authentic community. Next one. The authentic local community is aware of and nurturing of its various networks of relationship. There are all kinds of connections within our parish communities. Families, neighbors, schoolmates and co-workers, and members of ministry groups, devotional groups, prayer groups, service groups. We know people in all sorts of different ways in our communities. We need to recognize what those networks are and nurture them. Instead of just thinking, I go to church, I do my thing, I leave. Which is never the case, never really the case. The authentic local church community is always watching for the movements of the Holy Spirit in the cultural developments around it. Uh, the patterns of human relationship, even internationally, nationally, regionally, locally. What's happening? How is the Spirit moving? In other words, what are the signs of the times? And also, within the community itself, what are the patterns of relationships that are going on among your community members? And where is the Spirit leading? What is the Spirit saying in the midst of those patterns? The authentic local community is owning and embodying and finding Christ present in the ritual and the tradition of the whole church because it is a local church community and has that connection to the universal that I was speaking about before that it can't do without. It draws its strength by paying attention to that tradition, but it makes the tradition its own in the way that it embodies and understands where Christ is as a community. Now, it may not be all that unique from the parish down the road, but it has to be done in that local community, or it won't be done at all. It can't be given from the outside. The tradition can be, but it has to be owned locally. And finally, the truly authentic local community is teaching the whole church about what genuine authority is. It does that by becoming a tangible model of that authority, Christ's own authority. It lives that authority 
remembering now that what we're talking about when we say authority is truly engaging those authoritative values and uh, behaviors and so forth that are valued in the community. It teaches the whole church about genuine authority in a concrete location and in countless ordinary ways. We do not understand authority at all if we wouldn't see it lived out on a day-to-day basis in these intimate, face-to-face community situations. Now you may not think that I'm talking about any parish that you know about when I keep talking about intimacy and face-to-face connections. But insofar as uh, those networks exist, that, I think, is what holds the parish communities together. It's not about how big the building is or how many uh, people come there on a Sunday. It's about the strength of those networks of relationship. Without them, uh, none of this that I'm speaking of is really going to work. But with them, what we are face-to-face with is authority at the most basic and essential level that we can find it in the church. I'll stop there and uh, you can uh, decide um, how to ask me to sort out some of the things that I've uh, been talking about for a while now. Thank you. Thank you, Father. At this time, we have some volunteers that will be going around with baskets for the free will offering. It's also at this time you have the little index cards. If you have any questions for Father Bill, if you'll write them down and place those also in the basket and we'll go through them right after a short break. but also to say, okay, what do we do in a time of fewer priests? What do we do um, in a time of the kinds of pressures that we're looking at um, for the future, what the priest shortage is doing? Um, Likewise, we've assisted parishioners in other um, parishes, particularly in New Orleans and most recently in New York City. Uh, We have also, as many of you know, um, begun a conversation uh, with our members in Cleveland, encouraging you to take a copy of our best practices statement and our resource, Save Our Parish Community resource packet, to... We see it as a complementary effort um, to the vibrant parish life process. We're sort of at the clustering phase. The next phase is going to be 
how do we continue as with viable communities into the future, given the demographic and financial pressures for sure, but also given the reality of the pre-shortage projections um, that are very of great concern to our you know, our potential viability in Cleveland of having these vibrant uh, communities. One of the big issues that we're saying is rather than close vibrant parishes, if the only issue is a shortage of priests, we are asking our diocese and we're asking our members around the country to ask their diocese to consider keeping vital, vibrant, solvent parishes open with parish life coordinators as are um, as is provided for in canon law. So um, this resource has everything you need to educate about who, what, what are parish life coordinators. Um, there's also a study from the Council, Conference for Pastoral Planning and Confer, uh, Council Development, a 2003 study of every, actually they invited input from every U.S. diocese. They got input they got returns from 86 U.S. dioceses, and that study showed that 40% of parishes that merge uh, lose parishioners, whereas parishes that stay open with a parish director were more likely to increase parishioners. We think this is another important thing to be part of the conversation in our parishes and in our parish clusters as we uh, try to, as we journey together into the future. So it's, I suppose that's a big buildup. But we're hoping for those of you who haven't already, we have this resource packet available at the information table. Please, we're asking our members to take a copy of this packet, a complimentary copy, to your um, the president of your parish council. We've got a cover letter on it explaining it, as well as some information for you as the person who will take this resource. We were very fortunate to have grant funding for this project, and part of our thing that we said we would do is we would make this effort to get this information uh, broadly distributed in Cleveland. So thank you very much um, for listening to the local aspect of what we're uh, doing around preserving vibrant parishes and keep us in your prayers, um, not only locally, but also for our national efforts. So we have about 15 minutes for these questions. Can real intimacy and community of a local parish exist in the large merged parishes that will result from consolidation? It seems that diocesan authorities are treating parishes as service centers. Uh, for the dispensing and sale of the, uh, sale of the product. I'll leave this here so you can... Very well put. <laughs> um, one of the things in the um, Vibrant Parish Life packet that I, I didn't uh, particularly find myself agreeing with was a, um, a description of uh, the meaning of local church 
with an emphasis on local church as diocese. It's, it's definitely the case that more often than not, when the phrase local church is used in canon law and uh, in official um, church business, it does mean the diocese. Uh, but in the book especially, and I mentioned it already this evening, I, I talk about um, uh, the way in which uh, the uh, original meaning of the position of bishop uh, is very much akin to what we would think of today as a pastor because of the size and location of those early Christian churches. And when we understand that even in Vatican II, the, the symbol that's given for this local church is the bishop gathered around an altar with his people. With, we're talking about uh, a reality that's much more in tune with what we experience in parishes. I think that in the age that we live in, with large parishes and emphasis on efficiency and professionalism and so forth in the culture that we live in, it's almost inevitable that if we put our emphasis on that level, then it is going to come across as um, you know, efficient distribution points for the sale of the product, um, as, as this is put. It is possible that in those larger structures, if attention is paid to the network of relationships that I've spoken of, and substructures are allowed to flourish that can nurture and recognize those networks of relationship, and especially discern about where the spirit is moving in those networks, then it's possible even in a, a kind of a mega parish to end up with uh, some real intimacy and therefore the kind of authority that I was speaking of here. As a matter of fact, I think if anything is going to come out of these reorganized parishes, that's the sort of thing that must happen. Because I think the authority that I'm speaking of, that grows out of the person-to-person -person contact, the intimacy, is absolutely essential. If it isn't there, the whole thing will collapse. And so it will probably find a way. <laughs> the spirit will find a way. But interesting, uh, I think I'm retelling the story of the development of the diocese as we know it today out of uh, a local church that grew because people started converting to Christianity for all sorts of reasons. And then the bishops had to subdivide and uh, they created what we now know as parishes. And out of what had been an intimate community, a large conglomeration of other intimate communities emerged. And maybe we're going to do that all over again in a different way. Um, so I'm not completely pessimistic that, that it can't happen, but it's not going to happen by um, uh, an arrangement from the top down. Uh, the, this intimacy, the Spirit will, uh, will find a way to bring it through. Uh, but if we realize that we need it, and we nurture it deliberately instead of leaving it all up to the Spirit, uh, we might find ourselves in a more fruitful collaboration with God than, uh, than otherwise. How does one assess the strength of the local networks and determine whether or not it is time to move on? I think that that's, that's a question that is really very um, particular to the situation. Uh, 
you assess the strength of the networks by by paying attention to as many different factors as you can. Some of this is sociological, uh, and you might need uh, some professional help with that sort of thing. Um, there are resources for uh, assessing parish strengths and weaknesses. There's a whole movement called the Congregational Studies Movement, which began mostly among Protestants, um, that provides resources for studying the structure of a congregation and understanding what holds it together, where its strengths and weaknesses are. Um, people like another fellow Jesuit, Tom Sweetser, um, do that sort of thing also in the Catholic Church. Um, so there are resources for paying attention. Uh, my point is, is really just that in every situation, uh, you have to look carefully at what's holding things together, and if the interconnections that are holding this particular parish community together are weaker than more natural networks that are forming in other directions, uh, then you know it, it may become clear that the real work of holding people together, the real authority is being spoken in another way, in another location. Um, and I think that when you get to the point where people are just coming to a building uh, and there are none of those networks uh, uh, really holding people in place there, then uh, it, it's fairly obvious. I'm, I'm being, uh, I guess, deliberately vague about this because it really can't be spoken of in the abstract. You need a, a concrete situation to speak about and then, um, you know, to, to assess what those, uh, what those networks are. I guess I would say that if you think of it as a web, uh, it's the overlay and the extent of the web and how many different uh, uh, weaves hold it together. Um, so in other words, how many multiple connections are there? Um, how many different ways are people, people uh, interrelating? If you come together on a Sunday just... Uh, you see each other um, as you uh, give the sign of peace and that's it, um, that might tell you something. Uh, but if the person that you give the sign of peace to is the one that uh, you uh, served in the soup kitchen and that you saw at work the day before that and uh, whose kids go to, go to uh, school with your kids or um, any of innumerable other kinds of overlaps that there might be, then you've got uh, another, uh, another phenomenon altogether. What should be a believer's responsibility if he attends a parish where the pastor has abused authority, not listened to the wishes of the parishioners, built a beautiful rectory for himself and a new large church? What can a believer do? I'm sure that question is entirely theoretical. <laughs> I think that... Um, in a situation like that, it's the community as a whole that needs to move. It might need to be prodded by individuals within the community that feel particularly strongly. Um, but it can't be uh, simply a personal crusade because it's the community's values that are being offended. And if it isn't the community that uh, stands up against that, then perhaps its values haven't been offended. Uh, and then maybe the individual needs to be reassessing um, their place uh, in that community. But 
in what's being described here, I would say that you know the chances are very good that um, uh, many within the community would feel um, uh, that they had been offended. And then, if the community is a source of authority in the church, it has to speak. Um, right now, in Boston, there are amazing things going on, and I'm not always sure whether I'm comfortable with how amazing they are, but I still rejoice in them, even when I'm not comfortable. Uh, because I think that what's happening is that people are insisting on this authority that I'm speaking of. Um, I've been in a couple of different courtrooms watching uh, very faithful Catholics sue the Archdiocese of Boston. Doesn't sound like faithful Catholicism, but I believe that it is. Uh, I've been in uh, churches that are closed, um, but aren't closed, um, that are being lived in by uh, um, their uh, community members. Um, I've spoken with many, many people who, under other circumstances, I think would have just walked out the door. But something is making them stay. And if I didn't believe in the Holy Spirit, I'm not sure I would understand what it is that's making them stay. Why don't they just go and find a nice Episcopal church someplace? Um, it's because they're Catholics and they know it. And they love being Catholic. And uh, they are um, making a statement about the misuse of authority as they see it. I'm not saying that those kinds of actions always must end up um, with the the will of that group of people, the rebels, so to speak, uh, being adopted. But I think that we need to recognize that uh, the Spirit speaks in all sorts of ways and um, is beginning to speak quite loudly uh, among people who will not simply uh, take someone else's word for uh, what is the what is the right way to proceed within the community. Vibrant Parish Life 2 refers to the local community as the diocese and the local presider as the bishop. The question is, how do we as the laity in Cleveland address this fundamental difference between the definition above and what we have learned this evening? And what action do you recommend? I spoke a bit about this already in answer to one of the other questions. Um, I think that the way to assert the authority that I'm speaking of is to believe in it. Um, and what I tried to describe at the end of the talk was how an authentic Christian community uh, demonstrates its authority. I think that in the best of all worlds, it's not by suing the Archdiocese. Um, it's by living authentically in such a way that people recognize here is vibrancy, here is life. And some of the most impressive examples of that that I've seen are in places where uh, the people really have had to carry on without the leadership of the authority that should be leading them. Um, whether a pastor has been removed or is completely ineffective um, or is simply ignoring where his people are at, uh, they continue to carry on and demonstrate the, the kind of community that I've been trying to describe. Uh, this has happened at one time or another in each of the parishes that I've written about. 
in the book. Um, I think that the main answer to this is just simply that the community as a whole needs to believe that it does have this authority uh, and uh, to continue to speak in season and out of season. Um, gatherings like this are a good place for that to be nourished, I think. Um, there is a certain sense of going against the grain, but I think that theologically we're on good, solid ground. That there is reason to believe that the Spirit is moving uh, in gatherings of this sort and in what happens in your individual parishes. Uh, the local church from one point of view, is in fact the diocese, but that diocese is made up of networks of human interaction and intimacy uh, that absolutely must be respected. Uh, there is no authority apart from what the Spirit is doing in that place, as well as what the Spirit is doing in the more uh, traditionally recognized forms of authority. We have time for one more before our closing prayer. Personally, I do not see how we, the church, those in the pews, can ever genu genuinely merge with those in authority. They really do not care about us. What will happen to my young adult children in the future? It frightens me. The Holy Spirit is alive and well. The hierarchy is not. We must wait. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, there's a lot to worry about, but if the Holy Spirit is alive and well, then ultimately um, we're going to be okay. Um, there's a, a certain kind of egotism that I'm tempted by constantly when I face a classroom of students, because I want them to believe the way that I believe, and I want them to have the experience that I've had, and it's not possible. Uh, in the same way as those examples I gave earlier, um, you know, a prosperous Roman citizen uh, couldn't possibly believe in the same way uh, that uh, a German Catholic after the Holocaust uh, has to believe, um, or any of a hundred other examples that one might give of the differences. Uh, so things will be very different in the future. Uh, but if, as I say, the Spirit is alive and well, then um, we can look to that with, with confidence. And the intimacy that I'm talking about, the real authority that I'm talking about, uh, is very much in the hands uh, of the Spirit. And I can tell you that um, uh, even when those students don't gratify my ego, uh, I see some really exciting uh, connections being made. And I, I really do think that uh, one way or the other, whether we'll recognize it or not, we're going to be okay. Thank you again, Father Clark, for being here with us this evening and for sharing your wisdom. And we hope your next book is coming out soon. On the back of your, on the inside rather, of your program is the closing prayer. And we should say this together and appeal to the Holy Spirit that we will be guided in the days ahead for the needs of our church. Together. Loving Creator. Yeah.
for wholeness for ourselves and for your church. Ignorance or pride to limit the action of your spirit, nor allow mere custom to prevent divine creativity within us from bearing fruit. We ask for the sight to understand the needs of people today. Of the situations that face us. The poor have a right to hear the gospel. The hungry a right to the oppressed a right to freedom. Enable all of us to be women and men, enthusiastic for your ministry, contagious in our love, and eager to be among your people as ones who serve. Jesus Christ. Brother. Amen. God bless you all and have a safe trip home.